you can take your Bible and turn to John 13. At the end of life, all of us sober with the thought of death. I've had the privilege on several occasions to attend the death of people that I loved and people who were in fellowships that I was a part of. It is an honor to be there as a believer steps from this life into the realization of eternal life. And no one knows they're dying. You and I may be dying even now, quickly, moving to death. Maybe today. A few people in life come to a point of health that they know the end is near. And those are the people I speak of. Obviously, tragic death occurs, things sudden and unexpected. But I'm speaking about those who maybe linger on their deathbed for a time. And you've probably been there. You've probably seen it. No one on that day wastes a word. They don't waste any strength they can muster. They're purposeful in their closing moments. They want to make sure they can say that last thing they feel needs to be said to those they love the most. At the deathbed of a Christian... Theology reaches its most condensed and yet profound realization. Jesus Christ in John 13 is not laying on a deathbed. He's walking a dead man's walk. His hour has come. Commentators have said that John's gospel is the holy place of the temple. The whole gospel. If John's gospel is the holy place, then we're going to walk for the next few months in the holy of holies. John 13 through 17 is the Holy of Holies of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's holy ground. It's holy ground because this is, as I've titled this message series, a dying man's manifesto. It's a political term, I know. It's rife with all kinds of bad thoughts, but I want to inject into it these positive things. Because it's a public, a manifesto is a public pronouncement of action that will be taken if the regime is given power. This is Jesus Christ's announcement of what he will do 
past the cross. Because of the cross. For the sake of those who believe. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. A dying man's manifesto, and this passage brings me to the title, God the Humble Servant. Let's stand and read John 13, 1 through 11. We stand in honor of God's Word. Listen as it is read. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come... To depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and he took a towel and tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In asking this question, Peter was saying, Lord, don't wash my feet. He didn't want his feet washed by the Master. Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But he is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you. John says, for he knew who was to betray him. That that was why he said, not all of you are clean. God, in these moments, may your word be magnified. May the light of your gospel shine forth. Take your servant. Make him decrease. So that your glorious son might increase. Amen. You may be seated. First in this passage we notice that Jesus loves His people to the fullest extent. If you look in verse 1, part D, and by the way, just in note, I'm not making the D up. That's not whimsical. 
Each statement of Scripture is written in propositions. Propositions are thoughts, complete thoughts, that are tied then together by linking words, and they make a complete expression when they're all tied together. One thought, okay? When you see A, B, C, D in an outline next to a verse, the pastor is simply pulling out for you and labeling what is in the text. If you look at verse 1, we have four propositions. Now, before the feast of the Passover, part A, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, B, having loved His own who were in the world, C, He loved them to the end, part D, point one that's emphasized, Jesus loves His people to the fullest extent, to the end. As I start this explanation or exposition, I want to set the context. We know that Jesus has been under continuous threat since he raised Lazarus from the dead. We know this because John recorded it for us in John chapter 11 that they sought not only to kill Jesus, but also Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. And Jesus withdrew from them because they wanted to kill him. It wasn't his time in John 11 to die. The Jewish leaders wanted him dead because the whole Jewish nation, as they expressed, and even though they didn't know it, the Gentiles are going out after him. (laughs) Their schemes are to no avail. They can't shut him up, so they have to kill him. That's the last resort. John then recorded the magnificent anointing that took place at Bethany, which Jesus said had been saved by Mary until the day of his death. Which is interesting because it's not the exact day of his death, yet John tells us that Mary did this in anticipation, that the time had drawn near. She could sense, I believe, that he was going to die. This is the first clue given to us, the readers, that the end of Jesus' life is close by. It's near. After leaving Bethany, he covered, uh, he was covered in the aroma of nard. A year's money's supply worth of perfume was dumped on him. And he went into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the colt of a donkey, coming in peace. Alongside all the lambs that would be slaughtered for sacrifice, the Lamb of God came to Jerusalem. This is the context we find John writing about in John 12. Cheers, acclamation, maybe as many as 100,000 people scattered over the city, shouting to him, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now, is what they're saying. It's a triumphal entry, as it's been labeled. And thousands and thousands of people are there. They believed the long-awaited deliverer had arrived. And then Jesus says, whether in their hearing or not, He says in John 12, 23, that He did not come to sit on a throne at this time, but rather to be a seed which falls to the ground and dies and then bears much fruit. He was not the Messiah the Jews wanted. 
He was weak. He was going to be killed. He was going to be betrayed. He was rejected by them. He taught his last public sermon and the response is almost void. Nobody believed. Almost nobody believed. Unbelief was the characteristic of this crowd. And they would not accept this Messiah who had to come and suffer and serve so that he might bring them eternal life. Chapter 12 ends abruptly. I mean, it just comes to an end. Jesus is talking and it just cuts off. And then we find the first verse in chapter 13 where we're at. There's a transition. In the Gospel of John, you might remember, John often marks transitions by a marker of time. He's done it time and again in his Gospel. Here's another one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, he's transitioning. The public ministry is closed. It's finished. He's withdrawn from them. He's made his last speech as he's leaving with his men. And now it's just him and them. They're all alone. There's no one else there. He and his band of twelve have gathered as we look at John 13, verse 1. Part A. The feast of the Passover is here. This is the holiest week in the Jewish national calendar. And Jesus is celebrating this most holy of holidays designed by God to tell the Jewish nation there is a sacrifice and His name is the Messiah. He will come and deliver you in due time. All who trust in that sacrifice, everyone who trusts in that sacrifice, the hand of God's judgment passes over them. Like in the day the people... Your forefathers were in Egypt. This is what the whole celebration is about. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's where we're at. That's the context. Now it is just before the feast of the Passover we see in this first verse. And this is at least the second Passover that John's Gospel records. Most would argue for this is the third. The last he celebrates we know. On this earth, Jesus has come to the most holy celebration for the most holy of purposes to bring His Father ultimate glory and ransom those He came to save. Jesus loves His people to the fullest extent. Look at, before we get there, this second part of verse 1. When Jesus knew that His hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. You can take this first verse as the introduction to verses, to chapters 13 through 17. Jesus has come to the end of His life. He's returning to His Father. He loves to the fullest extent. And everything after that is just the magnifying, just the unfolding of that love. As we look again at verse 1, we see that He loved His own who were in the world. That's part C of verse 1. 
as I see it. He loved his own who were in the world. And world, cosmos, as it is interpreted or translated, you have to see the context. Because it has at least eight different meanings. John uses this word more than anyone in the New Testament. He uses this word over 70 times in this gospel alone. Compare that to Mark and Luke combined using it three times. And Matthew using it five times. This word means something. And every time we read it in John's gospel, it does not mean the same thing. What determines what this word means? The context in which it's found. He has loved his own who were in the world. This is not just a statement about they're on the globe. This is not a statement about them being part of the nations, as it's sometimes used, this word is, in other contexts. This is a statement about the fact that they, the disciples, were in the world system. They were, they were part of the world He came for. They were, as John Calvin says, the world which God saw fit to redeem. They were part of that world. The elect, the chosen ones. The one that God loved and gave himself for. Jesus loved his followers to the fullest extent. I keep saying the fullest extent, and I know your text says he loved them to the end. So I'll do my best to explain. Ice telos, referring to the love which Jesus had to the disciples. The first word might be, the first way we might hear this is that he did love them to the end of his life, and that would not be incorrect. He did love them. All the way to the cross. But I don't think that's what John means. Rather, he means he loved them fully. Exhaustively. No one loved the disciples the way Jesus Christ loved the disciples. It was a godly love. And by inference... If you're his child, he loved you. To the fullest extent, he loved you. And he gave himself for you. It's unending, we might say. It's eternal. It's boundless. This love meets no barrier which it cannot overcome. Which it, it meets no offense which it will not forgive. It meets no barrier that it cannot go through. You can deny me, Peter, three times. And in your denial, I will love you to the fullest extent. You band of weak-minded men can abandon me and leave me on the cross. And I will not hold it against you. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They don't understand. 
They are afraid, yet they're yours. And I love them to the fullest extent. And you came here today. And I came here today. And we are sinners. We often lose touch with the fact that we are sinners. And it only takes a moment for us to be humbled and brought before the fact that if His love was not perfect, if His love was not boundless, if His love was not eternal, if His love was not unending, we would have no hope. But thank God that Jesus' love is to the fullest extent. You can't outsin Him, His love. You can't fail to the point that He will reject you. His love is perfect. And His love is a specific love. It's not a general love. He loved them to the very end, to the fullest extent. In some ways, God, Jesus, loves everything and everyone, but not in this way. This love is reserved for those who are His children out of this world. This love is reserved for those who will spend eternity with Him. This is a very unique and special love. How is this love displayed to the disciples and to us according to John in this passage? That question leads me to the second point I want you to see in this text. Jesus, God, displays His love through serving others. Verses 3 through 5. Jesus serves others. If I were to talk about the love of God, your mind probably, in my mind, obviously, might go to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And you would not be wrong to go there. But you don't need to go there. Because John, in this text, gives us a picture of of the love that Jesus has to the fullest extent and what it looks like. There are few passages that show such a pure Christology, picture of Christ. I can name a few. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 1. But I've added in my Rolodex this passage. He said, this is about washing feet. You don't understand what I'm about to do for you, Peter. But you will understand it. I think he says the same thing to us. Because, see, we often get caught up in the fact that Jesus was washing people's feet. And what does that mean? Should we wash each other's feet like the Seventh Day at Venice do? Is this a sacrament with Jesus, that Jesus is attaching to the Lord's Supper? Should we pass bowls and towels around? Should we have common water and get each other's foot fungus? What do you think? We get caught up on that. We miss it. The whole point. We miss Jesus because we're looking at the trees and not the forest. We're a lot like the disciples who at this very moment are debating who will be the chief among them in the kingdom. 
the disciples are sitting at the table with Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And their argument is over who's the greatest. And Jesus rose up from supper and took out his outer cloak and stood before them in a servant's cloth and wrapped himself with a towel. And I can hear Peter and James and John and all the others joining in on who is going to be the greatest. Tell us who gets to sit at your right hand. Who's the greatest? And Jesus, all the while ignoring their talk, bows down before the first and sops the water into the rag and begins to wash dirty feet. Don't miss the point. Because you're too busy worrying about the little details. This is a Christological passage and it parallels Philippians chapter 2. It parallels it because it's the same Greek language which Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2. I'm not saying the two passages are dependent on one another. I'm saying the idea is from God. Therefore, they both understand it and write their own way about it. Philippians chapter 2, you're right, is not about washing feet. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God and equal with God did not, Grasped so tightly to that that he did not lay it aside and humble himself and come in the form of a man. Even a servant humbling himself even to a death, the death of a cross. That parallels exactly what this text says he did. Peter, I know, son, that you don't understand what I'm doing. But when I'm done, and when I've died, and when I've been raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, you will understand it. That word laid, there in your text, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garment, is connected to verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, Jesus, knowing that all authority of God was given to him, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is an affirmation of the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. This is God, a very God. This is not that the God that was once in Jesus, ascended back to heaven, and this mere man stood here before these people washing their feet. No. God washed the feet of the disciples. You say, well, that's impossible. That can't be. It's no more impossible than God, Jesus, being equal with God, did not hold so tightly to it that He did not lay it aside. What did he lay aside? Not his godness, not his attributes, not his power, not his knowledge. He laid aside that privilege of dwelling in the Holy of Holies of Heaven, in the Shekinah glory where he had been face to face, looking at God the Father like into a mirror from before the foundation of the world. He laid that privilege aside and put on the human flesh. And he came and dwelt 
with us. This is a parable. This is a parable which John uses to show the humiliation, the willing humiliation of our Savior, of God Himself. God, who had all authority given to Him, humbled Himself to be a servant. Look at verses 4 and 5, which follow this statement about God having given Jesus all power. And Jesus knowing He's about to go back and be with God. Yet, He rose up from supper. He laid to the side His outer garments. He filled a basin full of water and He washed their feet one by one. It was very intentional. His love which is to the fullest extent, is intentional. His love is shown through service, through sacrifice. I don't know if God loves me or not. You might say, in your dire moments, do we dare to question God's love when He has laid aside Shekinah glory? That he might come in the flesh and serve us and die for us. Do we dare to question his love when he has displayed it for us? In verse 4 and 5 we find Jesus doing what even Jewish slaves were not allowed to do. He's doing the job of a Gentile. He's wearing the garments of a servant. He's putting himself at the very Lowest and most abased position. Now, they've come fully washed. They've prepared themselves for the worship of the Passover. But when you traveled in their day with sandals on dusty roads, your feet got dirty. And they took their shoes off at the door and a slave generally met them there and washed their feet. Or one who was their friend, their close friend, might do it in a symbol of just loving them. Okay? But notice, they've come to the upper room. They're washed and clean for the Passover. They're feeling good. They're wearing their good duds. They kick their shoes off and go right into the table and sit down. Not one of them says, you know, there's no servant here to wash feet. I'll wash Nobody. And Jesus does not recognize that or call attention to it. He lets it go. And the debate begins, as recorded in the other Gospels, who will be the greatest in the kingdom? And then Jesus, so apt a teacher as he is, stands and takes his cloak off and begins to wash feet. God is a servant to these men and He's a servant to us. Not that He is lower than we are. Oh no. Here we see that this love which is expressed in service exalts to the highest. Because that passage in Philippians ends in verse 9 and 10 saying the one who was the most humble and at the lowest place, was then highly exalted. And we see here that the one who is most honored 
and most to be exalted, has laid aside his outer garment, has begun to wash the feet of the disciples to humbly serve. Which brings us to our final point, that Jesus displays the importance of continued sanctification even after we're justified. Jesus loved his men and he loved us to the fullest extent. He displayed that through the parable of service, through the picture of service, through washing feet. Washing feet is not mandated. John does not say that we should do this. He says later we're going to see that we should respond like this to one another, but not do this specific act. We'll get there in the coming weeks. But in this text, we move from the picture of the servant washing feet to a theological truth that he preaches through Peter's um, brashness, we might say. Peter that brash one who spoke often without thinking. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You can't wash my feet. Jesus gently rebukes him. Gently, not harshly. He knows Peter can't understand it. You don't know what I'm doing, Peter, right now, but you're going to understand it one day. You will get it in time. Jesus then explains sanctification in verse 10. Look what he says. Excuse me, begin in verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is a statement and restatement. Washing by Jesus equates acceptance and love. It's a restatement. If I don't wash you, then you don't have part with me. So we see here the beginnings of something which is rudiment maybe in this passage, but will be explained in further detail as we go, that you must be sanctified. You must be washed. You must be cleansed. You must be set apart to be a part of Christ's chosen ones. Jesus, after rebuking and beginning to explain sanctification, that process of washing and cleansing, then even shows that He loves not only those who love Him, but in some way even loves His enemies because He stoops down to wash the feet of Judas Iscariot and says, Not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean. I can't imagine. I can't place myself mentally where Jesus must have been. I've seen a lot of deathbeds for my age. I've seen a lot of people die. But I've never seen a person at the end of their life think of others and not themselves. When we come to the end of our life, we generally want sympathy. We want attention. We want people to write cards, recommendations, articles in the paper, buy us gifts. We want to know that people love us in our last days. 
But we see not a hint of that here with Jesus. He doesn't call any attention to himself. Standing at the door of death, Jesus serves. Why? Because he loved them to the fullest. And he loves you and he loves me to the fullest. It's boundless. It's eternal. It's unending. So let's make application. Jesus, first of all, Jesus' love for us is eternal. That means it had no beginning, and it's unending or everlasting. It has no end, and it meets no barriers that it will not overcome. This is not a general love. This is a specific love. Secondly, we should have the mind of Jesus as a humble servant. I don't want to rob next week's message, but this is an example to you and to me. Husbands, when's the last time you washed the feet of your wife? You say, I'm the leader. She ought to wash my feet. I'm the one out winning the bread. She ought to have supper ready. She ought to have those clean clean kids quiet and ready for bed. I ought to be able to come in and sit at the throne and enjoy my night. Which of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom? Which will it be? The answer The one who, like Christ, takes off the outer garment day after day after day and sees no task he cannot stoop to do. Sees no bound that he's not willing, no boundary he's not willing to walk past, over, or through. Who never demands his rights, but yet says, Even if this is my last day, I'll die serving. Husbands, when's the last time you did that in your marriage? Moms and dads, when's the last time you did that in front of your children? When's the last time you did that for an enemy like Judas? Someone who has betrayed you. It was already in his heart. The betrayal was done. I mean, he's minutes away from saying to Judas, here's a piece of bread, eat it, and go do what you're going to do. We're at that point. It's not a questionable thing. Maybe Judas will do it. Judas will betray him, and yet he washes his feet right along with the others. When's the last time that you did that for your enemy? Or your co-worker. But before I make it maybe too trite in your mind, let me say, theologically, we can apply it to say we should rejoice in the objective ground of our justification that guarantees our sanctification. Justification and sanctification are not the same thing. 
Theologically, they are different, yet they are always connected. The Catholics failed because they separated these two ideas completely, compartmentalized it, said at baptism when you're a baby, you're justified, and then you earn your sanctification through life, through the sacraments. And finally, you will earn it through purgatory where you will be finally rid of your sin and allowed into heaven. That's not what we believe. Our justification is the ground and the guarantee of our sanctification. Why am I stressing that? Because Jesus, if all He had done was wash their feet, would have only been a moral example of how we should love one another. But He did more than that. He rose up from washing feet and crossed the Kidron and labored in prayer and then went to the cross and died and was raised from the dead as the ground of our, of our justification. There is no other name by which you can be saved except that name which is raised above every name, Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the only way. He's the ground of our justification and the guarantee of our sanctification. Why do I say guarantee? Why not just say He's the ground of our justification and our sanctification? You could say that. But sanctification is not fully yet realized in our practical everyday life. It is an objective fact in heaven. You stand numbered with those gathered before the throne of God today because Jesus Christ died, was raised, and ascended into the heavenlies. And He now prays on your behalf. And Paul says in Ephesians, you stand before His throne Right now, Romans chapter 8 says that He predestined us in love that we be conformed to the image of His Son. And those He predestined, He called. And those He called, He what? Justified. And everybody He justifies, He glorifies. Which is the end when we will fully realize our sanctification. But that doesn't jive with your life and my life today. If you're honest, you sinned before you got here. You've sinned while I've been preaching, and you're going to sin when you leave this place. So what about sanctification? Has God failed? No. The same blood which was the ground of your justification, we see here, Peter, that one who's already been washed, justified, needs only his feet cleansed. He doesn't need his head and his hands washed anew. Do you see it now? Why I make an application about theological truths of justification? It's there in the passage. His response when Peter is humbled and humiliated and says, Oh, not just my feet, but my head and my hands. Peter, you don't need that kind of cleansing. You're justified. The groundwork is laid. You're accepted. You are mine. Not all of you are mine, mind you. But you, you are mine. But you do need your feet washed. And so I close asking you, when's the last time Jesus Christ graciously washed your feet? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what John said. 
You don't need to be saved every time you fail. But you do need your feet washed. When's the last time he washed your feet? Oh, God will never wash my feet. Then you have no part with him. When's the last time that your glorious King in your life, not somebody else's and not in the Bible, stooped to cleanse you? We might say, when's the last time you called on Him in confession? Because if you called on Him in confession, He cleansed you. Let's pray. Father, we bow now saying, Your will be done.